Restoration of forests may not look like restoring forests to what they were 200 years ago or 400 years ago. Um, it may be, you know, perhaps looking at replanting with, with species that are going to be better adapted to conditions that we're going to start seeing in the future. And so we joke a little bit about, uh, you know, having to rename Joshua Tree the park formerly known as Joshua Tree, right? You just heard the voice of Patty Glick, the senior scientist for climate adaptation at the National Wildlife Federation and key contributor to a transformational new approach to land management currently being implemented by the National Park Service. Glick is at the forefront of a dramatic shift in how public land is managed in the United States. For well over a century, land managers have been fixated on preservation, preserving natural landscapes in their current state and restoring degraded landscapes to an imagined pre-colonial ideal. This approach has been problematic from the start, largely because our typical version of what land looked like before Europeans arrived is just plain wrong. The very concept of wilderness is a construct of colonialism. We're taught that large swaths of North America were largely uninhabited before the arrival of Europeans, and that we should restore our national parks and protected landscapes to this natural, uninhabited state. But the reality is that every corner of the continent was inhabited long before any Europeans arrived. So in many ways, this preservationist approach to land management is an extension of colonial ideals. It is rooted in the same rationale that the United States government used to justify Native American genocide. But it isn't this deeply troubled history that has begun to crack the foundation of our preservationist approach towards land management. It is climate change that is upending the concept of preservationism. Joshua trees will disappear from Joshua Tree National Park in the coming decades, and there's nothing that land managers at the park can do to prevent this from happening. So if we want this tree species to persist, managers and park service officials are finally realizing that they need to think beyond preservationism. They need to think about climate adaptation. What can we do to help wildlife adapt? What, whether that is ensuring that there are not barriers to dispersal if they can disperse, or actually maybe even physically moving a, you know, certain plants or species to another area that they might persist in in the future. to humans, wake up, wise up, do what you can, individually and together. 
Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. I'm Matt Podolsky. In today's episode, we'll hear from a group of scientists who are working at the forefront of climate adaptation as we seek to answer one crucial question. What role do humans have to play in ushering ecosystems through the dramatic climatic changes that are to come? been working on climate change for since the early 1990s. Again, that's Patty Glick, Senior Scientist for Climate Adaptation at the National Wildlife Federation. You know, I actually started more on the mitigation side of things, which is, you know, trying to reduce um, climate change by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We were talking about the impacts that climate change is already having, and it occurred to me even then why, you know, should we also be talking about how do we deal with those impacts? Um, and, you know, at the time, I think a lot of people working on climate change were afraid to talk about adaptation, which is dealing with the impacts, because there was a fear that um, we would look like we're giving up and that we're throwing up our hands on the mitigation side of things. But, you know, we at the National Wildlife Federation recognize that, hey, we need to do both. We need to minimize climate change the best we can, but we are dealing with impacts, increasingly dealing with impacts. So so climate adaptation really was a, a logical uh, transition for us as an, an organization and, and for our mission um, to, to be able to ensure that wildlife can survive in a rapidly changing world. Um, but we also talk about adaptation from a management perspective, and that's the human end of things. For years, Glick had been working on climate adaptation goals with representatives from the Park Service, the Forest Service, and other federal land management agencies. Then, during the Trump administration, a team was quietly assembled with the task of crafting a new land management framework for the Park Service. The first of a series of papers outlining the agency's new approach towards managing national park land was published on the day before President Biden's inauguration. The title of that paper? Resist, Accept, Direct. So it's kind of a nice acronym called RAD, the RAD framework. Um, and essentially it just means, you know, for, for changes that are underway, yeah, let's try and resist them when we can say, maybe um, irrigate um, sequoia trees in Sequoia National Park, where they're thinking about doing that. Some cases, we may have to accept change. For example, the loss of glaciers. Um, not a whole lot. Where, you know, I know in, in some places, like in the Alps, they're actually laying tarps on glaciers to prevent them from, from melting. And there's certainly some innovative stuff being done. But for the most part, some changes we are going to have to accept and interpret. But then there are also opportunities to um, perhaps direct change uh, in a way that may at least um, on a larger scale help maintain persistence of a species, even if it's in a different place than it used to be in the past. So, again, I mentioned Glacier National Park. You know, there may be very little they can do to prevent the loss of glaciers, but they are doing, they've actually for their um, endangered uh, cutthroat 
trout, they're actually moving some of those um, fish to higher elevation lakes. And again, it's, it's a change from historical conditions, but that's being done to maintain persistence of the species on a whole. And there's hope that some of those lakes will not warm as, as quickly as some of the, the current habitat for those species. So what might this mean for the protected landscapes that we love? I happen to live very close to a national conservation area that has already experienced dramatic landscape changes as a result of climate change. The Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, home to a uniquely high concentration of raptors. After speaking with Patty Glick, I began to wonder how this new RAD framework might be applied to this familiar landscape. It is really interesting to be in this role where I am taking great effort to maintain or reverse what is lost, but also being ever so mindful that conditions are changing around us so rapidly. That's the voice of Anne-Marie Ramondi, the ecologist for the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area which we'll refer to simply as the NCA. Over the last 75 years or so, nearly 70% of the native shrub communities in the NCA have been lost to fire. At the same time, we've seen a significant proliferation of non-native invasive grasses and forbs. So we've really experienced a shift in the vegetative state Increased wildfire in native desert shrub habitat is a huge problem throughout the western U.S. Because of climate change, as well as the presence of invasive grasses, fires have become much more common in these desert ecosystems. Yeah, the communities in the NCA are not fire adapted. There are very few shrub species that can re-sprout after fire. Sagebrush can't. Winter fat can't. A lot of our salt desert scrub species can't. So with 70% of the native shrub habitat in this national conservation area already wiped out by wildfire, what does ecologist Anne-Marie Ramondi's management approach look like? The biggest challenges initially for doing restoration in the NCA is invasive weed competition and drought. So in a lot of areas of the NCA, we have a cheap grass understory. If you want to convert grass monoculture to a native state, your first step is to reduce cheatgrass presence and the cheatgrass seed bank. And to effectively do that, you would need to do up to five years of repeat herbicide treatments. That would be step one. Then step two would be to conduct drill seeding treatments with a variety of perennial grasses or forbs. Since we're working in degraded landscapes, there are additional challenges. Oftentimes in those areas, the biological soil crust isn't incredibly intact. If they experienced fire before, the below ground conditions have been altered. There's more nitrogen available. Um, Mycorrhizal communities have been reduced. So kind of all the pieces that you would need to guarantee that these species are able to establish and and proliferate is is rather limited. And in my work in the NCA, especially visiting areas that we've done restoration treatments in the past, whether it's herbicide applications or seedings, um, a lot of those efforts have 
declined over time. And so if we put that in a management context, it's really difficult to advocate for more money, more funding, where we already kind of have this legacy of failure. It isn't just this National Conservation Area, or NCA, that has experienced repeated failed attempts at restoring native shrub habitat. This is a common story all across the Western U.S. You know, the Snake River Plain is hot and dry, and it's going to get more so, I think. So restoring to that native sagebrush set may not be possible it's yeah it's that might be the hard truth and that means restoring to something else i think i don't know if you'd call it restoration in that in that example restoring to an alternative state that you expect for the future within the fire community it drives me crazy when when people are trying to get back to this this condition that no longer exists, right? Um, and it's gone. You know, we have to adapt. Those quotes were from Scott Zimmer and Dr. Jen Pierce. We'll be hearing more from both of them shortly. On the question of restoring native shrub habitat, there is some nuance here that's worth noting. While everyone that I spoke with agreed that a complete restoration of the native shrub habitat that's already been lost in this national conservation area is well out of reach, everyone also seems to agree that strategic, small-scale restoration efforts are worthwhile. This is the R in our RAD land management framework. This is what resistance looks like in this particular area. Small-scale habitat restoration efforts that help increase connectivity with remnant patches of native shrub habitat. But it's the A in that RAD acronym that is most difficult for people to digest. A stands for ACCEPT. This is a very difficult concept for anyone who works in conservation or wildlife management. It is so deeply ingrained in our minds that we should be fighting against climate change. How can we wrap our minds around simply accepting these changes? The first and most obvious answer is that we don't have a choice. We could expend enormous amounts of resources attempting to restore the entirety of this national conservation area to its previous state, and this effort would almost certainly be fruitless. Conditions have already changed too much. We have to accept that the native shrub habitat is gone in many of these areas. But Scott Zimmer, former graduate student at Utah State University, shares another example of what accepting change might look like. Pinion juniper encroachment into shrubland habitats and the lower elevations is pretty widespread. Um, so I kind of see that as maybe an issue where we can probably back off on some of the treatments and the chainings that, that we've been doing. Pinion and juniper encroachment is a controversial issue out here in the West. For over a decade, federal agencies have been working with ranchers and other local agencies to remove large swaths of pinion pine and juniper trees. 
This is Resistance with a capital R. Juniper trees have been slowly encroaching on sagebrush and other native shrub habitat, so land managers removed the trees to restore these areas to their previous condition. Here's Jason Tack from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service explaining the reasoning behind juniper removals. The past 100 to 150 years, there's been a massive expansion of conifer woodlands into sagebrush rangelands on the order of two to six fold just in the Great Basin alone. And sagebrush areas in particular are bearing the brunt of that. So 90% of the expansion that's happening from pinyon juniper woodlands is occurring in sagebrush. There's been a lot of ecological consequences from this uh, expansion of treed systems into these uh, sagebrush rangelands. I'll hit each of them briefly, but basically what we have is increased fuel loads, pretty major impact to native plant communities, uh, reduces water storage that's on the landscape, and it impacts wildlife populations as well. For all of the reasons that Jason just listed, efforts have been undertaken all across the Intermountain West to implement large-scale removals of young pinyon pine and juniper trees in areas where they are encroaching upon sagebrush and native shrubland habitat. These efforts have been touted as a huge success story. We've improved populations of sage-grouse in Oregon. You know that we're extending benefits to songbirds, migratory songbirds as well. There's a lot of success stories out there. But we need to make sure we continue this practice so we don't get flanked by ongoing encroachment in other places as well, because it's going to continue to happen. But will pinion juniper encroachment really continue to happen? It seems that the climate models paint a different picture. For his graduate research, Scott Zimmer conducted an analysis of all recent climate models focused on shrubland ecosystems in the western U.S. He found that... The declines in pinion juniper that we saw were pretty consistent and pretty widespread. It's difficult to know how to interpret that. Do we twiddle our thumbs for the next half a century and until pinion juniper really starts to die back? You know, the timescales are long, potentially. You know, it could be, you know, plus or minus 20 years or whatever uh, with these climate change models until the changes that they're projecting would come into play. So it's really hard to know how to interpret and how to how to continue to manage around these things, I think. So once again, we have an answer here that requires some nuance. The ranges of pinion pine and juniper trees have been expanding over the past century, but climate models tell us that this expansion will be reversed by climate change in the coming decades. Should we continue to remove juniper and pinion pine trees if climate change will remove them for us in 20 years? I'd argue that it's at least worth considering the A in the RAD framework in this example. If climate models predict a decline in pinion pine and juniper for a particular area, it probably makes sense to just accept the changes that are happening. This doesn't necessarily mean that all pinion juniper removals should immediately cease, but that climate modeling should be factored into each local decision. So now that we've looked at some examples of what the R and the A in the RAD framework might look like in the Snake River Plain of southern Idaho, it's time to explore the most interesting and controversial aspect of this new land management framework, the D for directing change. First, we'll take a short break.
Earth to Humans is back and better than ever with a slate of guests and topics that we can't wait to share with you. If you like the work that we do here on the show and want to support us so that we can keep bringing you the good stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash earth to humans. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show in a big way. Patreon subscribers will get access to a range of exclusive ETH content, including our book club, author talks, archived episodes, merch, and more. That's patreon.com slash earth to humans for more information on how you can join this kick-ass community of nature loving weirdos. We're back, and it's time to explore the most interesting aspect of the new land management framework currently being implemented by the National Park Service. We've explored the meaning behind the R and the A in the RAD acronym, and now it's time for D, which stands for DIRECT. The concept of directing change is what sets this land management framework apart from all past approaches taken by federal government agencies here in the U.S., For the first time, land managers at the Park Service are being granted permission to envision the ideal future condition of a landscape and to expend resources to work towards achieving that imagined outcome. While this idea might seem a bit radical to seasoned land managers and old-time conservationists, it doesn't necessarily imply a drastic change. Something that we haven't really approached in the NCA at a large scale is increasing rabbit brush. Rabbit brush is more resilient to fire than any of the shrub species we have in the NCA. It can re-sprout after fire. It certainly provides structure and habitat. It's great for pollinators. And if we're talking about adapting and maybe thinking forward, I've, I've certain, I certainly want to pursue rabbit brush plantings more, maybe even more than sagebrush. Rabbit brush is native to the Snake River Plain region, including the area encompassing the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, but it is not the dominant shrub species on the landscape. That role has been reserved for the iconic sagebrush. But as we've learned, sagebrush doesn't re-sprout after wildfire, and it is notoriously difficult to reseed. Anne-Marie Ramondi, ecologist for the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, believes that rabbit brush holds great potential as a species that could replace sagebrush as the dominant shrub on this landscape, and she's seeking to test that theory. Rabbit brush might be more resilient to altered soil communities. We don't really know. And sagebrush has been the primary restoration shrub in the sagebrush step, just because it's, you know, the focal dominant species. But perhaps in the NCA, rabbit brush could fill that role. This example of directing change likely won't face any controversy since it's about replacing the dominant native shrub species with another species that is also native to the area. But when we start to think about the scale of the climatic changes that the future holds, we need to think beyond just replacing one native species with another. It's almost like you have to restore forward. Um, And what does that look like? What does a desired future condition look like? Um, Can we work our way towards something rather than, you know, just accepting that changes are underway. Um, And that's, you know, it's going to require innovation. The idea of protection even is, you know, a little bit upended. 
So when we think about directing change from this larger scale perspective, with an understanding that entire ecosystems will be transformed, things start to get complicated. Will the sagebrush dominant ecosystems of southern Idaho start to look more like the hotter desert ecosystems of the southwest as temperatures increase? Dr. Jen Pierce, a professor in the Department of Geoscience at Boise State University, is part of a research project looking to answer this question. I'm working with scientists from El Paso and from New Mexico, and we're specifically studying the um, the warmer, drier uh, southwestern desert. So I think that that study will help us really understand what the differences are between these landscapes, and that will help inform whether Idaho might look more like uh, like the Southwest moving forward. How you know, and how those how those plant species might might adapt. Should we be looking towards sites in the Southwest? places in the, in the park service that are losing their their namesakes who knows joshua trees we could try them <laughs> i'm kind of joking i think it'll be too cold in the winter but but you know you know you never know and so those those are that's i think that's part of the adapt we really need um, both a lot of good science but a lot of creativity when we're thinking about how to address these problems so Here's the thing. It isn't too cold for Joshua trees in southern Idaho. A quick Google search shows that Joshua trees can survive winter temps of negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So why is the range of this unique species restricted to a relatively small area of the Mojave Desert? I'm going to take us on a brief detour to explore the natural history of the Joshua tree. The Joshua tree is a type of yucca. There are more than 40 species of yucca, all native to the Americas. Several smaller species have been cultivated and are common garden shrubs. I actually have several species of yucca planted in my backyard where I live here in Boise, Idaho. Joshua trees are an iconic indicator species of the Mojave Desert. They are found in parts of southeastern California, western Arizona, southern Nevada, southwestern Utah, and northwestern Mexico, with a large portion of the population concentrated in Joshua Tree National Park. While climate change probably won't drive Joshua trees to extinction anytime soon, numbers are already dwindling. A 2020 wildfire wiped out 25% of a massive Joshua tree forest in the Mojave National Reserve in California. This was one of the largest contiguous Joshua tree forests in the world, and one quarter of it was wiped out in just a few days. Many species are currently undergoing a process of natural range expansion as temperatures rise and precipitation levels change. But range expansion is easier for some species than it is for others. Many plant species rely on symbiotic relationships with animal species to disperse their seeds. This is the plant's mechanism for finding new habitats to populate. Otherwise, the plant's seeds would all remain in very close proximity to their parent. For millions of years, the giant Shasta ground sloth provided the primary means of seed dispersal for Joshua trees. There simply weren't any other large mammals that would eat the seeds and fruit of the Joshua tree. 
The extinction of the giant Shasta ground sloth about 13,000 years ago likely explains the limited range of the Joshua tree, and it could also spell doom for the species as we enter the climate crisis. So the question of whether Joshua trees could survive and thrive in the degraded landscapes of southern Idaho's Snake River Plain is an important one. This is a species that needs a refugia from climate change and can't get there without some help. It's as much of a cultural challenge as it is, you know, a physical challenge. Uh, And that's probably the hardest thing, I think, uh, for agencies like the, the Park Service. You know, because people know these parks because of their namesake species, and and that's a hard thing to um, just to think about having to let go. Um, so yeah, on the broader landscape scale, I think that there are places where Joshua trees will continue to um, be able to survive and, and thrive. Um, it's a values-based question uh, as much as it is, uh, you know, a, a science-based question. As Patty Glick points out, when trying to answer difficult questions about directing change, we need to think not just about science, but about our values as a society. Do we value the continued existence of Joshua trees enough to expend great effort to ensure their future survival? To what extent do we want to assist the migration of species as the climate changes? What happens to Joshua Tree National Park once the Joshua trees are gone? Like Joshua Tree National Park, the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area can also be thought of as a namesake protected area. Just like Joshua Tree National Park was established to protect Joshua trees, the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA was established specifically to protect birds of prey. The area remains an important habitat for raptors. Some species have declined in numbers, such as golden eagles, while others continue to thrive, like prairie falcons but the future remains very uncertain. Could it be that the Birds of Prey NCA becomes a refugia for Joshua trees, while some other protected landscape provides future refuge for raptors? These are complicated questions that require more research to answer in any comprehensive way. One thing is certain, however. The changes that we have seen thus far are only the tip of the iceberg. Another factor for us to consider as we assess the range of options for directing change is the ability for natural systems like forests and coastal wetlands to sequester and store carbon. So there's kind of a a dual um, benefit to protecting and enhancing these natural systems, not only to help them um, be more resilient to changing climate, but also perhaps to um, enhance their ability to, to fix things on the emission side as well. 
When we think about carbon sequestration, we don't typically think about desert ecosystems, but... Here in Idaho, in our lower elevation areas, we have that the white stuff uh, in the soils, which many people would call caliche. Um, I call it pedogenic carbonate. Um, and that caliche is um, calcium carbonate. And that calcium carbonate has carbon as CaCO3, and it is storing carbon um, in our soils. So we always think of carbon storage in soils as the organic part, you know, the nice black dirt that you that that makes a nice garden. But here in Idaho and in our sagebrush steppe ecosystems, there is actually a lot of this of this calcium carbonate or um, pedogenic carbonate or caliche that is also storing carbon. And it turns out from some of our sites, uh, new sites out in Kimberly, Idaho, that if you there's a potential that if you irrigate with hard water, which much of the water from the Snake River has a lot of calcium in it, that those farmers have been uh, in, you know, they've been precipitating calcium carbonate in those soils for for decades. This carbon sequestration scheme falls squarely in the direct category of our RAD land management framework. When we are free to envision an idealized future condition for protected landscapes, the options are wide-ranging. Why not manage a landscape for carbon sequestration? Especially if we're talking about degraded landscapes that are impossible to restore with native species, this seems like a smart management strategy. When you hear that term carbon sequestration, that often to me brings to mind ideas of kind of like industrial pumping of CO2 underground and and um, that. But what if we could do that naturally by irrigating with calcium rich water and and provide um, forage for, you know, whether it was cattle or for deer and elk. So really, uh, you know, I think valuing our our open spaces for those those ecosystem services that the soils are are providing, um, I think, is is an important um, part of this. Let's take a moment to imagine a potential future scenario for these landscapes within the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. The year is 2072. Southern Idaho and the Boise metro area are hot, but not unlivable. Many parts of the southwestern U.S. have become unlivable, and the population of Idaho has swelled. The city of Boise is unrecognizable from what it was just 50 years ago. It has become a large metropolis. The swelling population of Boise doesn't extend too far beyond the city's limits, however. To the south, open desert stretches for miles and miles. This desert landscape is wholly transformed from the sea of sagebrush that was once its defining feature. Instead, we see rabbit brush, desert saltbush, and a variety of less common desert shrubs. 
As we travel across the landscape, we see innumerable experimental planting sites with a wide variety of desert species. There are shrub species, once native to the Sonoran Desert, and numerous species of cacti. There are planting sites dedicated to growing saguaro cactus alongside other Sonoran Desert species. As we continue traveling across the Snake River Plain, we come across the first of many Joshua tree stands. The trees are still young and short, but there is an endless sea of them. The young Joshua Tree Forest extends right up to the rim of the Snake River Canyon, where we see prairie falcons perched in a few of the trees overlooking the canyon. Ground squirrels dart between the trees, wary of the falcons looming above. Bordering this young Joshua Tree Forest is what looks like an agriculture field. The bright green vegetation of the field stands in stark contrast with the surrounding desert landscape. As we get closer to the field, we see irrigation pipes running up the walls of the nearby canyon. Water from the Snake River is being diverted to irrigate this field. The plants growing in this field are not for human consumption, however. They've been planted as forage for wildlife. Mule deer dot the field, and a few desert bighorn sheep can be spotted along the field's edge near the canyon rim. Beyond this large green field is an interpretive center, with a large sign proclaiming, Welcome to the Morley Nelson Snake River Joshua Tree Birds of Prey National Park, proudly managed by the American Coalition of Indigenous Nations. A park ranger greets visitors, and a large building houses a museum exhibit called The Assisted Migration of the Sagebrush Sea. A sign on the exterior of the building proclaims, Tons of carbon sequestered at the Morley Nelson Snake River Joshua Tree Birds of Prey National Park. 57. A sad native plant garden has been planted behind the interpretive center. All the plants are watered with drip irrigation, and they look small and scrawny, like they are just barely clinging to life. Sagebrush can no longer survive on its own in this landscape, but maps inside the interpretive center show numerous locations further north and at higher elevations where sagebrush-dominant ecosystems are thriving. As we travel beyond to the Interpretive Center, we come across another large building labeled Wildfire Management Center. Here, large teams of wildfire management technicians conduct training exercises and develop plans for the annual park-wide vegetation survey. Inside the building, we see maps of the park that detail the locations of all the different experimental plantings, as well as the network of access trails used by fire suppression crews. We see hundreds of people participating in training and planning exercises in the building, and there are hundreds more out in the field. It clearly takes a massive human effort to prevent wildfires on this landscape. As we zoom out and take an aerial view of the Morley Nelson Snake River Joshua Tree Birds of Prey National Park, we see a patchwork of irrigated fields, experimental planting zones, Joshua Tree forest stands, and open desert dominated by rabbit brush and saltbush. We see a few areas where the vegetation is blackened by recent wildfires, but these areas are small and are being actively replanted. While I'm committed to fighting for a version of this idealized future that I've laid out here, I worry that our reality will be much more bleak. So what can we do in the present to help land management agencies realize some version of this idealized future condition? I think in particular, you know, leadership within the agency recognizes this 
this big picture, but getting, and that's why this guidance is so important because I think that it, it helps the managers recognize that there is space for them to think about um, achieving their mission, even in spite of some of this change. It gives them, I don't want to say gives them cover, but it does give them, I think, permission to recognize that there are changes and that there are challenges to managing parks in these conditions and that they have the ability um, to to think outside the box, uh, if you will, and outside the park. The RAD land management framework is still in its infancy. Park managers are still working to understand the implications of this shift in how we approach land management, and many land managers working for other agencies are still wholly unfamiliar with the RAD framework. We're hopeful that the Bureau of Land Management, you know, will you know, take on uh, some of these challenges more and more, um, you know, just like the Forest Service has been and the Park Service and others. I think that agency is a little bit behind the curve in, in certain um, elements of, of thinking about adaptation, but, you know, the challenges are just as great in many of those lands. The Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, is the agency responsible for managing the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. This agency has not begun implementing the RAD framework, as explained by Scott Zimmer, who currently works for the BLM as a rangeland management specialist. Yeah, as far as, you know, making use of, of research like this at the BLM, it's, it's difficult. I think we might need more guidance and direction from, from pretty high up, from you know, Department of Interior as a whole, for example, to incorporate climate change planning. But, you know, if we take a really simple example, like deciding not to treat pinion juniper in an area where we think it's really marginal, I don't know what our footing would be um, to, to cite climate change research as a, as a reason why we don't think that treatment is worthwhile in that, in that ecosystem. And that would be really interesting to see. We have so many mandates, so many conflicting mandates. And then that's maybe why, why having a more, more direct framework from above, um, a more specific way to think about climate change might be necessary. This is what the RAD framework provides, a mechanism for thinking about climate change planning from a holistic perspective. While it's just the first step towards creating ideal future conditions for our protected landscapes and public lands, taking that first step is critically important. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wild Lens Collective, 
The show is produced every other week by Serena Simons, Hannah Mulvaney, and myself, your host for today's episode, Matt Podolsky. We're now on Instagram at Earth to Humans Pod, and you can sign up to join our new book club at patreon.com slash earth to humans. This episode was produced in collaboration with the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, a friends group for the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. All of the interviews featured in this episode were first aired as a part of the Dedication Point podcast series. So if you're curious to hear more from Patty Glick, Dr. Jen Pierce, Scott Zimmer, and Anne-Marie Ramondi, be sure to check out Dedication Point wherever you listen to podcasts or head over to the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership website at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org. Our intro sequence features audio recordings from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Music featured in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Ragged Coyote. You can see a full list of credits on our show notes page at wildlensinc.org slash eth233.